You're listening to The Taylor Marshall Show, a special series on the book of Revelation. Today we continue to look at the great whore of Babylon, Revelation chapter 17. And I know many of you listen to this podcast with children. This one may be one that you want to use discretion on because it does have some sexual content that's taken from the Old Testament prophets, primarily Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Just a little heads up. But uh, it's going to be an interesting show, a really good one, as we look into the unfaithfulness, the adultery of Jerusalem and Israel as it relates to the apocalypse and the empire of Rome. If you love theology, if you love Catholic theology, if you love the Old Testament, if you love history, especially Roman history, this is the episode for you. Let's get started. Revelation chapter 17. Howdy, and thank you for tuning into the Taylor Marshall Show. This is the podcast for everyone who wants to create daily habits and learn enough theology to take their faith to the next level. And as I said in the intro, we're going to look at Revelation 17 and a pretty graphic depiction of what unfaithfulness to God looks like in the allegory of adultery. Well, today we uh, are going to do something that we haven't done in a while. I'm kind of missing the old format before we started the book of Revelation, and and we're almost done. We're at chapter 17. We're on the second half of it, and I'm enjoying it. I'm learning a lot. But I do miss kind of our proverb of the week, our tip of the week, etc. So this week, before we get started, I thought we would lead off with a proverb of the week, as we used to do in the old days. And so this week, I picked out Proverbs 19, verse 11. So it's chapter 19, verse 11. It goes like this. Good sense makes a man slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. End quote. So the first half here, it's good sense uh, that makes a man slow to anger. So if we have a hot temper, if we get angry, this is something that I struggle with, by the way. Um, it shows that there's a lack of good sense. So what we need to do is we need to pray to God for the virtue of prudence. Prudence is the virtue of good sense. Prudence is one of the four cardinal virtues, and it's making right decisions in accordance with wisdom. So if we gain that virtue of prudence, we'll be slower to anger. And in the second half, it is his glory to overlook an offense. What's interesting here is this operative word, glory. It's the glory of the prudent man to overlook an offense. You will be offended today. You'll be offended this week. You'll be offended by family members, by friends, and by complete strangers. And none of us want to be a doormat, and I don't think that's what the Scriptures are asking us to do. But sometimes we have to overlook an offense. We've been offended, and we just overlook it. We say, you know, I'm not going to take offense to that. And that's a decision that we can make with our will. I think in the culture in which I live, I know the people that listen to this podcast are all over the world and Asia and Africa and Australia and everywhere, but I live in America. We live in a society that's very politically correct and everyone is always getting offended about something. And what does that tell us? It tells us that our culture, or my culture, is not one of glory. It says here that it's the glory of the man to overlook an offense. So if we are constantly being offended, we are lacking in glory. And who has the greatest glory? God. And second to him 
Our Lady and the saints, those who are in heaven. They are glorified, as the Bible calls them. So that's what we need to do. We need to find prudence so we don't become angry in our in our day-to-day life. And we need to realize that it is our glory to overlook a fault. So there it is, the proverb of the day, if you want to look it up for yourself. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11. There, wasn't that fun? We did a proverb of the day. It makes me feel good. Well, we tackle a unusual chapter in the apocalypse. And I'm talking about chapter 17, where we're introduced formally with descriptions of the great whore, the prostitute. The In a previous podcast, I used the word slut, and I think that corresponds with the Greek because it's so shocking to us. We don't like to use that word, but that's exactly what the authors of sacred scripture are using. And we're going to see today that John in the Apocalypse, who's communicating this vision through the Holy Spirit, and also Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel use extremely graphic and shocking language to describe Jerusalem and Israel in her infidelity towards God. Uh, We've talked about this before in this podcast, but we need to be reminded that in the Old Testament, the covenant between God and his people, Israel, the Israelites, was depicted as one of holy matrimony, of marriage. God had chosen a bride, the people of Israel, and he had bedecked her with jewels and rituals and rites and means of grace and had really set her up as the chosen nation over all the world. And he told Abraham, through your descendants, I will bless all the families, all the nations of the earth. So God chose the Israelite people, the Hebrews, to be the light to the world. And ultimately that was going to happen through Jesus Christ, and it did happen. But the people of Israel before Christ, and then especially at the time of Christ, were committing adultery against God. And over and over in the Old Testament, the prophets are saying, you people of Israel have become like a harlot. God loves you. He provides everything for you. He's always there. He's present in a mysterious, sacramental way in Jerusalem for you. And yet you turn away and you commit adultery with the kings of the world and with their gods and with their um, idolatries. And you have committed spiritual adultery. So what's shocking is when we turn to the New Testament and Christ comes and the people, for the most part, not all of them, they are faithful Israelites, faithful Jews who came to believe in Christ and followed Christ. Our Lady, of course, is one, St. Joseph. St. Andrew, St. Paul, St. Peter, Mary Magdalene, and so on and so forth. Many people that were of the Israel line recognized Christ and followed him. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. But most of them didn't. And notably, the leaders, the high priests, the priests, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the people who were in charge, the people who studied the Bible, rejected God incarnate. I'm talking, of course, about our Lord Jesus Christ. And when they did that, it was like they filed for an official divorce against God. 
God had come to them at the temple. He had taught them. He had been meek and mild, merciful, and they sought to kill him. Not just kill him in a in a kind, civil way, if you could even say that, with like a you know a guillotine or something. The slow death of a crucifixion at the hands of Gentile barbarians, the Romans. So when that happened, Israel became formally, explicitly an adulteress. And we see this depicted in symbolic, apocalyptic language in chapter 17. And all along as we've moved through Revelation, I've shared my conviction, which is found in many of the Catholic Church fathers, that this great city is Jerusalem. It's not Rome, as some commentators say. It is Jerusalem. In today's chapter, we're going to see exactly why that is. We're going to see that the city, the great whore, is distinct from the beast of the sea, who we've already identified in spades as being Rome itself. So let's get started. I'm going to read the first few verses, and then we'll go line by line here in Revelation 17, examining the great whore of Babylon. Chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had come, I'm sorry, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who is seated upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and with the wine of whose fornication the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden chalice full of abominations and impurities of her fornication. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of harlots and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I greatly marveled. But the angel said to me, Why marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. End quote. So we saw here the great whore of Babylon, and then we see that she's riding, she's sitting on a scarlet beast. And St. John the Apostle is marveling. He's amazed. He's looking this like, oh my goodness. And the angel says, hey, why are you marveling? I'm about to tell you what is meant by this woman, by the beast, by the seven heads, and the ten horns. So today's episode is really two halves. The first half, we're going to look at this vision. And then in the second half, we're going to look at how the angel uh, explains to John what all of these features mean. So are you ready? Okay, let's get started. So this part of the vision begins with one of the seven angels who had brought the seven chalices that were full of the seven plagues. And we've covered all of that in the last several podcast episodes. And here he says, come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now, we saw before the seven chalices were poured out on the city, and we saw destruction of the city. And so now it's kind of, you know, the the angel picks up the remote and he hits pause. He says, okay, John, now I'm going to kind of do it play by play. We're going to go slow motion. You kind of saw the 
big devastation of the great city of Jerusalem being destroyed. Now we're going to pause everything, and we're going to take it slow. And I'm going to explain to you and to everyone who's reading the book of Revelation, which has been decided by God to be revealed to the Catholic Church, to be revealed to all the saints, so that you can understand what's happening. So he shows the great harlot who sits on many waters. And later on, the angel's going to explain that these many waters, drawing on a vision from Isaiah, signify the many nations. And this confirms for us earlier in Revelation 13, when I talked about the beast that comes out of the sea, that this was the Gentile beast that comes out of the nations. This is the Roman Empire. And she's sitting on the nations. And then we're going to see in a little bit, she's sitting on the beast who comes from the sea. So the sea and the sea beast are linked again, are linked together once again, and they signify the Gentile nations brought together, ruled over by the city of Rome. There's something I didn't mention earlier, but in, in Revelation chapter 1, in our first podcast we did, it says there that when Christ speaks, his voice is like the sound of many waters. And I, I didn't make the connection then, but later on now, as I'm circling back and immersing myself in the apocalypse once again. The voice of Christ notably sounds like many waters because the voice of Christ, the gospel, the apostles, and all the missionaries after the apostles are taking the voice of Christ into the nations, into the Gentiles. And I've never seen this before, but I think that's exactly what's going on here. The reason that Christ's voice sounds like many waters, well, it's drawing on Ezekiel chapter 43 where God's voice sounds that way. But it's also God's voice echoing, not just in Israel, not just in Jerusalem, but to all the nations of the earth. Next, we read that this great whore, this harlot city, has committed fornication with the kings of the earth. Now, this is prophetic language. This is used by all the the major prophets and the minor prophets to describe the infidelity of the people of Israel towards their husband, who is God himself. And now that Christ has become man, he's taken on a human nature in his hypostatic union. He's fully God. He's fully man. He is present literally on earth, physically, through the incarnation of the Blessed Mother. And he's talking to them, and he's wooing them, and they are rejecting him. It's as if the husband had come home, after a long business trip, and he finds his wife committing fornication with another man. And in this case, the other man is chiefly Rome, but all the other nations with over to the time of the Old Testament she's committed adultery with. And I'm th- speaking here of especially Egypt, but the Babylonians and Arabs and the Sidonians and all basically all of their neighbors, they have been betraying their God, and using the gods of the other nations in the political maneuvers with the other nations to try to have self-preservation. God is about to tell them that doesn't play. That does not work. Now, as we've been going along here, I've been trying to stress over and over that the great city, that this Jezebel city is Jerusalem. And although some commentators say it's Rome, and we're going to see why in today's chapter, I'm going to look at some of the Old Testament passages that describe the adultery and the fornication of Israel, of Jerusalem, 
so that you can see what's going on here in the book of Revelation is nothing new. It's just the culmination. So in Isaiah chapter 1, so at the very beginning of the greatest prophetic book of the Old Testament, Isaiah, we read this in chapter 21. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was once full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. So Isaiah is lamenting. He's saying this once faithful city, Jerusalem, where Abraham had been with Melchizedek, where David had been and pleased God, where Solomon had built the temple, the place of God's quasi-sacramental presence in the temple, Isaiah says, has become a whore, has become a harlot. We find the same thing in Jeremiah. And by the way, these are some of the passages that are a little bit more explicit. Um, I don't like using explicit language, but it's in the Bible. And so I think we should come to terms with it and recognize that apostasy, rejecting God, is gravely evil. And therefore, the prophets of the Old Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit, use graphic language in order to depict the, the unfaithfulness, the infidelity of the people. So in Jeremiah, at the very beginning of Jeremiah, same theme as in Isaiah, Jeremiah chapter 2, he starts describing the people of God, the Israelites, the Jewish people, as a harlot. Quote, God says, If a husband divorces his wife and she goes from him and belongs to another man, will he still return to her? Will not that land be completely polluted? But you are a harlot with many lovers. Yet you turn to me, declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see. Where have you not been violated? By the roads you have sat for them like an Arab in the desert, and you have polluted a land with your harlotry and with your wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withheld, and there has been no spring rain. Yet you had a harlot's forehead, and you refused to be ashamed. So here God is speaking directly to his bride, to his people Israel, and he's saying, look, you, who have you not been violated by? You've been so unfaithful. It's not just one time, two times, three times. It's hundreds of times. Hosea, the entire book of Hosea is about an adulterous wife who rebels against her husband. And Hosea uses this, this prophetically significant accusation against Jerusalem. And he says that you have committed adultery on every threshing floor. Now, a threshing floor is where men would go after the harvest and they would thresh out the grain. They would separate the wheat from the chaff. And prostitutes, women, would come to the threshing floors. Why? Well, that's where all the food was. And all the men were tired. They'd been working hard. They had basically been with men working in the fields, isolated from women. So the men were prone to sexual license, and they had lots of money, lots of food. So prostitutes would go to the threshing floors in the evening. They knew that there would be plenty of food. They would beg to receive food in, ex in exchange for sexual favors. We see this kind of thing actually happening in the book of Ruth, though it's be it's that whole scenario is redeemed by Boaz, and Ruth actually becomes his wife. 
But we see that same kind of behavior happening even before King David. And it's notable that the temple in Jerusalem was actually built on a threshing floor. If you go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 3, you'll see that there was a big plague, and the plague was stopped at a threshing floor, and that land was purchased. And David, and then it was appointed by David, and then Solomon built the temple right there on what had been a threshing floor. So Hosea is saying, you know, you unfaithful people of Israel, y'all are just like these prostitutes that show up at the end of harvest and are begging for grain and will exchange your purity and without shame for a little bit of bread, a little bit of grain. Now, Ezekiel gets even more graphic. I'm not even going to read everything that Ezekiel writes because it is it is pornographic. If you want to read it, you can go to Ezekiel 16 and Ezekiel 23. But in Ezekiel 16, we read this. I'll read a, a passage here that kind of gives you the gist of it. And if you want to go and, and read it yourself, you can get the more graphic parts yourself. It is the Bible, so we don't have to be ashamed of it. But, you know, I want to be sensitive to the listeners here. So in 16, beginning at 15, the prophet Ezekiel says this about Jerusalem. But you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your renown and lavished your harlotries on the passerby. You took some of your garments and made for yourself gaily decked shrines and on them played the harlot and like has never been or ever shall be. You also took your fair jewels of gold and of silver, which had been given to you and had made of yourselves images of men and with them played the harlot. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread, which I gave to you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for a pleasing odor, says the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had born to me, and these you sacrificed them to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as offspring of fire to them? And in all your abominations and all your harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, waltering in your blood. And then it goes on from there. So he says, look, you know, you were my young bride, you were pure, but you took the jewelry that I gave you, the gold and the silver, and you turned them into idols and you committed idol- uh, sorry, you committed adultery, fornication with the idols. And in the Hebrew, it's pretty graphic right there, by the way. And she's wearing, the gold and silver is going to come into play here in a little bit in Revelation 17, by the way. And she's wearing these fine clothes, but she's taking the sacramental um, items, the oil, the grain, the incense, the honey that's supposed to be offered to God. And she's offering them to these nations and to these idols. And later on, in just a few verses, she said, oh, I'll read it. I'll read some of it here. And after all your wickedness, woe, woe, woe to you, says the Lord God. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. And at the head of every street, you built your lofty place and prostituted your beauty, offering yourself to every passerby and multiplying your harlotry. You also played the harlot with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying 
their harlotry. And I'll skip this part, but basically he goes on to say, you have spread open your legs. This is quote, you've spread open your legs to every passerby to multiply your harlotry. That's what we see there in the Hebrew. So it's pretty graphic and it's, it's accusatory. And notably, it's God speaking. It says, thus says the Lord. So God is saying, you set up a prostitute shop, a red light district in every single square, every single street corner, you were out there playing the prostitute. And he goes on it with very graphic language in chapter 16 to talk about how much she lusted after the genitals of these men. It's really gross. So we can see here that the prophets are calling out to Jerusalem and by extension the nation of Israel and saying, you have betrayed your God by seeking after the nations. And how much more so now are we seeing it in Revelation chapter 17 where they have not only said, well, I don't love you, God. I love all these other idols and all these other kings, but I now want to kill you. And I want to crucify you. That's what the the bride is saying to her husband. I want to kill you and crucify you and throw you into a pit. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. John 19, 15, when the high priest cries out, we have no king but Caesar. Christ is standing before him. God himself, the creator of the universe, is standing before the high priest. The high priest represents God. And he says, I reject you, Jesus Christ. And I have no king but Caesar. The pagan Roman emperor back there in Rome who worships idols and thinks he's a god and is breaking the Ten Commandments every single day, he is our king. He's the true king of Jerusalem. He's the true king of Israel. And this is why the book of Revelation is happening, people. This is why the apocalypse is happening. God is saying, okay, you don't want me. You want to divorce me. You want to commit adultery. You want to have your husband as Tiberius Caesar or Claudius or Nero Caesar. Great. That's your new husband. But for those who want to be faithful to me and want to know me and have peace and have salvation and receive grace and mercy, come to Jesus Christ, my only beloved son. Everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So then it goes on here and describes how the woman is holding a chalice. And this is sacramental. This whole image here is a mockery of the high priesthood. The high priest who says, we have no king but Caesar. So she's wearing red and purple, which are the colors of the high priest. Gold and silver, which the high priest was decked with. And a chalice, which the high priest would carry all the priests, really, for libations, blood libations that would be poured out to the glory and honor of God in gratitude for what he's done for them. But this priestess, who is a whore, a harlot, she has a chalice that's full of the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus Christ. She hates Christ, and she wants his followers to be punished. And we see this in the book of Acts. We see that Stephen is killed by the leaders in Jerusalem. We see that James the Greater is. We see that P- 
Peter is imprisoned, and later James the Lesses and Simon, and many more faithful Christians, early Catholics, are being killed by the false and apostate priesthood there in Jerusalem, and they're made drunk, as it says here, quote, were made drunk on the wine of her fornication. They don't see it. You know, when you're drunk, you do stupid things. You say stupid things. That's exactly what's happening in Jerusalem. They're doing and saying stupid things, and it's going to get them all killed. As you know, you know, if you have an abusive boyfriend and you're drunk, he's going to take advantage of you, which is what happens here. But often the bad boyfriend turns around and there's a lot of abuse, domestic abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, and all of that happens. All of that happens historically here in the apocalypse. And it'll happen again at the end. Everything that happened in AD 70 when the Romans turned on Jerusalem and destroyed it, that's all a type of something to happen in the future. But we can look back in history and we can see how it played out. And it's also something, it's a reminder for each and every one of us that each one of us, as I mentioned previously, are a spouse to God through baptism. We belong to him. And we can commit adultery against God through mortal sin. And he calls us not to. And we can return to him through his mercy and his grace. And he's always ready to forgive us. But if we just keep saying, no, I have no king but Caesar. My my king is America. My king is the president of the United States. My king is the political situation. My king is money. My king is sex. My king is false religion. My king is new age religion. Whatever it is, God says, okay, I hope that works out for you. It's not going to, but if that's really what you want, I'm going to respect your free will. There you have it. And as we're going to see here in Revelation, that doesn't ever play out well. It doesn't play out well for a nation, a city, a family, or a person. So we, as we go on here into verse 3, we see that this harlot, the whore, is sitting on the scarlet beast, the red beast. And this is the sea beast. The sea beast is full of blasphemous names. This kind of alludes back to Christ, who we saw earlier, who was full of eyes. He's able to see everything because he is God. Here, the sea beast is not full of eyes. He's full of blasphemy, blasphemous names. And once again, he has seven heads and ten horns. And he rises up out of the sea, which means the nations, and this rising is always a mockery of the rising of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Christ. And this distinction here between the red sea beast and the woman shows us that the woman can't possibly be Rome. We've already confirmed that the sea beast is the Roman Empire. And we saw that the number of the beast is the number of Nero Caesar, the Roman emperor. So the beast is the Gentile kingdom of Rome. The woman is the adulterous wife of God, the spouse of God, who should be virginal and immaculate, like the Virgin Mary. She should be that way. She should be one holy Catholic and apostolic, but instead she's become unfaithful, and she's become a prostitute on every single corner of Jerusalem. So we can see here that the woman and the beast are two distinct realities. 
This is what shows us that she is Jerusalem. And so she's sitting on the beast. So they've become aligned. She has gone after the beast as a lover, and now she's riding her lover around. And they've become kind of peas in a pod. They are united. They are synergized. They are working together. The Roman beast of the sea is willing to carry her around as long as she is fulfilling his lusts. But that's not going to work out for long. We saw in verse 4, she's clothed in purple and scarlet, red. This is the color of royalty. And she's gilded with gold and silver and precious stones and pearls. And wouldn't you know it, we saw that in Ezekiel chapter 16. She has uh, embroidered clothes, nice clothes. She has gold and silver and jewelry. In Ezekiel, we learn that who gave her the gold, silver, and the jewelry? God gave her the gold, silver, and jewelry because he was a groom who loved his wife. He loved his bride. But also we see her depicted as a mockery, as a cartoon of the high priest. So she's wearing priestly garments, and she is holding this chalice that has the blood of the martyrs in it, and she's doing this in mockery, and she's using martyrdom to get herself drunk and to get others drunk. So the martyrdom is the frenzy that works Jerusalem up into this irrational behavior that serves uh, the Roman uh, political agenda. And then she has a name on her forehead. We've seen this over and over again throughout the book of Revelation. Names and signs and numbers written on the forehead. And of course, the harlot of Jerusalem is going to have to have something written on her forehead. And so what is it? Well, before we reveal the significance of that, it's it's noteworthy to see that in the Old Testament, the forehead is the symbol of rebellion. Uh, you can see this in Isaiah 48. You can see it in Ezekiel 3. The forehead is where you sort of wrinkle up your brow. You can put your head down and you can be aggressive. It's the place of the mind and it's where you make that decision to turn away from God. That's why Jeremiah also speaks of the, and this is Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 3, he speaks of the whore's forehead as that of rebellion. And so the forehead of the prostitute is even more noteworthy. And we've talked about how Moses asked the people of God to put the law of God, the Torah, on their forehead. This is why Jews even today wear these phylacteries on their forehead. So Jerusalem is not wearing the law of God on her forehead. She's wearing her harlotry, prostitution on her forehead. And we find there written the word beginning, mystery. Or in the Greek, if you look it up in the Greek, mysterion. Mysterion is the Greek word for sacrament. It means mystery, of course, but it also means sacrament. Jerusalem is the place of God's sacramental, real presence. Jews in the Old Testament faced Jerusalem, prayed that way, just as we pray towards a tabernacle in a Catholic church. God's presence was there in the temple, in the tabernacle. That's why we call our tabernacle a tabernacle. And so they would face and direct themselves that way. And so Jerusalem, and especially the temple, the tabernacle, 
was sacramental. And so the woman has on her forehead mysterion, sacrament. The word sacrament is on her forehead. And then it goes on to say Babylon the Great. Babylon was the greatest enemy of the Israelite people, and now Jerusalem herself has become the enemy of the people of God. And by this we mean the Catholic Church. Also, it calls her the mother of harlots. She's the mother of harlots. And this refers back to Revelation chapter 2, where we saw Jezebel, who was an Old Testament harlot and a queen who led people away from God and her children in Revelation 12. We also see in Ezekiel that he refers to Jerusalem as a mother with daughter harlots. So again, we see the Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, they're referring to Jerusalem as a harlot, as a mother of harlot. And I think the reason I keep drilling this over and over and over is I want you to realize that the city is Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been condemned by God. It's been condemned by Christ. Well, remember, you know, Christ said, you know, he wept as he was coming into the city of Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you, right, as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. The city is going, your house is is left to you desolate. It's going to be destroyed. And this explains why St. John is so amazed. Let's go back here. I'm going to read it again. And when I, John, saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said, why marvel? I will tell you. And he goes on. John has seen a lot of interesting things in the apocalypse. I think, you know, we've gone through 16 chapters. There's been some interesting images. It's been pretty amazing and shocking. And yet this is where John's jaw drops and he marvels. He's like, I can't believe what I'm seeing here. And the angel notices and says, hey, why are you marveling? I'm about to tell you what's going on. But John is blown away. Why? Because John is Jewish. John has been to Jerusalem. He was in Jerusalem for the Last Supper. He was in Jerusalem. He was there at the crucifixion. And he was there at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down. He's seen Jerusalem. He knows the Old Testament. He knows that Jerusalem has been faithful. I'm sorry, Jerusalem has been sacramental and has been a place of God's presence among the nations. And that's why when he sees the great city decked as a prostitute, holding the chalice, containing the blood of his brothers and sisters in Christ, and riding upon the Roman beast, he can't believe his eyes. Everything he knew as a Jewish believer, everything he knew as an Israelite has been overturned. Israel has now become the enemy. Israel is riding on the back of pagan Rome. Israel is holding a chalice, not with the life-giving blood of Jesus Christ, but she's boasting that she's collected the blood of the martyrs. So the angel says, okay, John, let's talk about what it is you are seeing. So let's read that, and this is the second half of Revelation, and I'm beginning at chapter 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is to ascend from the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And the dwellers on land whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to behold the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. 
The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to perdition. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and give over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who with him are called and chosen and faithful. Okay, so there's there's a lot there. We see the beast. He's back. He's red. The woman, the false bride, the prostitute is riding on her back, and he has seven heads and ten horns. And here the angel tells us that the seven heads are, in fact, seven rulers, seven men. Now, this book is taking place, the visions here are taking place in the time of Nero Caesar. And if you're just coming in and you're concerned about the dating of Revelation— or how I understand the dating, or why I believe what I do about the datings, please go back to the first episode of Revelation chapter 1 where we talk about the author and the dates and all of that. But this is happening during the reign, this vision of Nero Caesar. That's why the number is 666. If you add up the letters of Nero Caesar, that adds up to 666, as we talked about previously in our episode on Revelation chapter 13. But there are, notably, six Roman emperors leading up to Nero Caesar, and then a seventh that lasts only a short time. So it fits perfectly the chronology given by the angel in Revelation 17. So the first one is Julius Caesar. The second one is Augustus Caesar. The third one is Tiberius Caesar. The fourth one is Caligula Caesar. The fifth one is Claudius Caesar. The sixth one is Nero Caesar. And then the seventh one is Galba. And in Revelation, it says the seventh one will last but a short time. How long was Galba the emperor? Less than seven months. So we have a perfect chronology of the Roman Empire emperors right here in 17. And then, although the beast has seven heads, it says that there will be an eighth that will come. And it belongs to the seven, but it's distinct. And it will also go down to perdition. The eighth beast is Vespasian. Vespasian is the one who's involved in the destruction of Jerusalem. He follows with the beastly cruelty that Nero Caesar had, not only against the Jewish people and against Jerusalem, but also against the, the Christians following the persecution of Nero Caesar. So those are your, your seven Caesars. Again, Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, Galba, and then there's the year of the four Caesars, but that gives way to Vespasian, who brings about the complete and utter destruction. You'll also see here that the beast is now switched out with seven hills. So first the woman was sitting on many waters, that's significant of the sea beast, the Gentile nations. Then she's sitting on the Red Sea Beast, the Roman Empire. And then now we see she's sitting on seven hills. 
all three of those depictions, the many waters, the sea beast, and the seven hills are all signs of Rome. Rome, as you may know, is called the city of seven hills. This was identified by Virgil in the Aeneid. He calls Rome the city of seven hills. Cicero also identifies uh, Rome as the city of seven hills. So definitely this reference to the city of seven hills is Rome. The woman is not Rome. She's sitting on Rome. So again, the sea beast, the waters, and the seven hills are Rome. She herself has enthroned her prostitution business on the back of the Roman Empire. Then in verse 12, we hear about the ten horns. So there's the seven heads, those are the emperors, and then the ten horns. And the ten horns, according to the angel, are the ten kings. Now, Rome had ten imperial provinces. Rome has ten imperial provinces, like states, if you want to think of them that way. And so the authority of the beast to persecute Jerusalem and the Christians, eventually, is now shared with the ten provinces, the rulers of each of the ten provinces, or as the angel calls them, the ten kings. And it says, these have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast to wage war against the lamb. So this is a persecution of the church, not just in Jerusalem, the bride, the, the, the false bride, the prostitute, not just in Rome, the city of the seven hills, the sea beast, but now in every province of the Roman Empire. But then we have good news. It says, and the lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings. And those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. And we see this often in the book of Revelation. When things get really scary, when things get really bad, when things for the Christians are looking like a losing battle, the Holy Spirit through John jumps in and says, hey, but don't worry. Jesus is going to win. The saints are going to win. The church is going to win. Yes, there's this totally awful harlot, the spiritual slut of Jerusalem. But the book of Revelation, if you've read it, you know, ends with a new woman, a new Jerusalem, a virginal bride who has no spot, no wrinkle, she is pure. She has reserved herself for her husband. And she is the Catholic Church. That's what's coming, right? So we get these little little pauses. Say, hey, don't worry. God's still in charge. The Lamb of God is still King of Kings, Lord of Lords. I know it looks scary. Don't marvel. You're going to be okay. If you're listening to this and you're like, oh, my goodness, this is freaky. The seven heads, the ten kings, persecution, a chalice with my blood in it, the whore of Babylon. Take a deep breath and realize the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, he is inside of you. That makes you more than a conqueror. In verse 15, the angel explains that the waters on which the harlot sits are in fact the peoples, the multitudes, the nations, and the different languages. In other words, the entire world, the entire Gentile world. Now in verse 16 is where the tables are turned against this uh, prostitute. And I haven't read 15, uh, 16, 17, 18 yet, so I'll read those and then I'll do the commentary and we'll be done for the day. Chapter 15, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the harlot is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues, 
And the ten horns that you saw, they are they and the beast will hate the harlot. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For this God has put into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and giving over their royal power to the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city which has dominion over the kings of the earth. End quote, end of chapter. So verse 15, she's sitting on the waters of the nations. The ten horns and the beast will hate the harlot. So they were committing adultery with her. They were fornicating with her. But they've used her up. They're done with her. They're ashamed of her. And now their hearts turn against her. They hate her. And they're going to do four things to her. First of all, they're going to make her desolate. Second of all, they're going to make her naked. Third, they're going to eat her flesh. And fourth, they are going to burn her with fire. So Rome and the ten provinces are now going to say, all right, Jerusalem, it's over. And this happens in AD 70. We saw it happen already when the chalices were poured out in 16. This is just kind of the replay. This is the slow motion replay of what we saw in chapters 15 and 16. Okay, so first of all, they make her desolate. This is a reference to the book of Daniel, which comes up so often in the apocalypse. When false idols and abominations are set up in the sanctuary of God, and we know that, in fact, the Romans did enter the sanctuary of God and defile it. Secondly, they will make her naked. Um, this is in the ancient world, not just among the Jews, but all Middle Eastern cultures. If an adulteress was um, caught or convicted, one of the punishments that she received was to be stripped naked in the public square. Um, it was seen as fitting. If she was going to uncover herself for men for money, the ultimate sign of her degradation, her punishment would be to strip her naked in front of all the men and all the women of the city so that she would hopefully at least feel some shame for her licentiousness. So they're going to do the same. How do, how do you strip a city naked? Well, you take everything from it. You take the gold, you take the silver, you take the food, you take the water, anything that has value, you strip the city of its necessities, of its adornments, and you leave it naked. And what do the Romans do in AD 70? They stripped the city. They left her naked. Third, it says that the beast and his ten kings, his provinces, will eat her flesh. They're going to consume her. Now, as Catholics, we believe that we eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus Christ, and this gives us life. This is the sacrament this is the communion. This is the great mystery of faith for us. And here we see that the woman is a false priest. She has the word mystery on, mystery on her forehead. She's a false, she's become a false sacrament. And so the Gentiles are going to eat her. They're going to consume her, her flesh. Of course, it doesn't bring any salvation for them, but it highlights that she has become a false sacrament for the nations. Christ says that he gave up his life, he gave up his flesh and his blood for the life of the world. 
the Eucharist is him handing over himself for the life of the world. Here, the bride doesn't give herself up voluntarily. She doesn't graciously say, this is my body. No, in fact, she is being devoured and stripped naked and destroyed and made desolate by the men that she trusted in. These are the, these are the men, the passerbys that she lusted after and she wanted so badly. Now they are abusing her and kicking her to the curb. And then lastly, burn her up with fire. In AD 70, it's exactly what the Romans did. They burned the city. They burned the temple. It was consumed with fire. This is one of the reasons, by the way, why the woman can't be Rome. Rome has been sacked. Rome has had you know a lot of battles over many centuries and millennia, but she's never been burned to the ground. She's never been totally stripped naked. But Jerusalem has. It's a historical fact. You can read about it in Josephus. Uh, also, you know, the eating of the flesh refers back to Jezebel. She was mentioned in Revelation earlier. She's the archetype for the adulterous queen who leads God's people away. When she died, dogs came and ate her flesh, which is seen in Jewish literature as the, just the worst insult that you would die and that you wouldn't be buried, but that dogs, unclean dogs, would eat your flesh and chew on your bones. That's exactly what happened to Jezebel. And probably this is a reference here that this woman, this woman city, this great city has become so nasty that she is like Jezebel and she too will have her body eaten by those who are unclean dogs. Christ says, remember when the woman wants her daughter healed and Christ says, you know, I have come to the house of Israel, right? The bread belongs to the children of Israel, to the Jewish people. And the woman says in faith, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table. And he says, I have not seen such faith in Israel. And he provides the healing. The Gentiles are like the dogs to the Jews. And here, the dogs who ate Jezebel are the Romans who will eat and consume Jerusalem, who's become like a Jezebel. Also, historically, throughout the Ten Provinces, we see great persecution and destruction of the Jewish people who were unfaithful to the covenant of God. For example, Josephus tells us that in Alexandria, in Egypt, the Jewish people were rounded up and the entire Jewish quarter was put to the sword. 50,000 corpses lay in the city in piles. That's in Josephus. Also in Ptolemaeus, entire Jewish people were rounded up and butchered in the Roman provinces. In Scythopolis, 13,000 were butchered. In Caesarea, the entire population was killed. In Syria, the Jews were separated from the Syrians. They also were killed. Josephus recounts all of this in his book, The Jewish War. So we see that not just in Jerusalem, but the Romans everywhere say, you know what? We don't like that whore anymore. Let's kill her, shed her blood, make her desolate, strip her naked. That's the end. Here's the hard part. I don't like reading this. It's a mystery, but I have to read it because it's in the Bible. I've already read it once. Maybe you picked up on it. It may have shocked you. But in 17, we read, quote, For God has put it into their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast. 
This is God's plan. It's God's plan of punishment for infidelity. I don't know how to reconcile this. I know God is all loving. I know he's all merciful. I know he desires every single human person to be saved from Adam and Eve until the very last baby born. But he's also a God of justice, and he warned the people. He came to the people. He even died in accordance with the flesh to reconcile us to him. But if we reject so great a witness, if we reject the resurrection, if we reject the sacraments, if we reject the new bride of God, which is the church, we can and we will be destroyed. We will be handed over to our vices, and they will do these four things to us. Your vices, your sins will make you desolate. They will make you naked. They will eat you up, and they will burn you with fire. So it's a warning, not just to people living 2,000 years ago. It's a warning to me. It's a warning to you. God is just. He will not allow sinners and the wicked to escape justice. And he offers us mercy as the lifeboat. We must put out our hand and say, yes, I want you, Jesus. Reach out and grab the hem of his garment and say, I trust in a miracle from you, Jesus. And if we do that, we will be saved. If we don't do that and we turn away or we try to kill him or destroy him, destruction will come to us. We'll close with chapter 18 and then a practical application. In chapter 18, it says, And the woman that you saw is the great city which has dominion over the kings. We've already established previously in 14 to 15 that the term great city refers to Jerusalem. What puzzles some commentators is the last part. The great city which has dominion over the kings of the earth. And you might say to yourself, well, Taylor, Jerusalem doesn't have dominion over the nations of the earth. I mean, it seems like Rome has dominion over Jerusalem, not the other way around. So maybe the woman really is Rome. Well, let's hold on here. The book of Revelation is not talking about political philosophy or the political order. The book of Revelation is talking about a covenant that Christ came to sign with his own blood to save the entire world. And he came to Jerusalem to sign that blood covenant on the cross. Jerusalem has always ruled over the nations of the world. She had the sacrifices. She had the laws. And most importantly, she had the presence of God in her tabernacle. So from a spiritual point of view, she rules over all the nations. Politically, this changed a lot. You know, there's the Babylonians that came over the Jewish people, and there were the Persians and the Medes, and then there's the Greeks, and then there's the Romans. And, you know, long before all of that, there was the Egyptians. So, you know, the Israelites have been under the thumb of a lot of persecutors. But from a spiritual point of view, they've always been number one because God's provided the covenant for them and provided the temple and the sacrifices and the laws of God. And, you know, when, when you read the Maccabees, you realize that what although they're persecuted, what great privilege they had. So this great city did, in fact, spiritually rule the entire world. And this is more evidence that the woman is Jerusalem. I'm going to close up today with not necessarily a a lesson application, but a question application that I want you to ask for yourself and to reflect upon after you finish this podcast. 
how are we as Christians, how are we as Catholics collectively and then individually, so for yourself, how are we becoming like the harlot, the prostitute? How are we as Christians in the world becoming, and this is gross, crass language, but it mirrors what we read in the Hebrew and it mirrors what we read in the Greek. How are we becoming spiritually slutty towards God? And then what can we do to recommit our fidelity and our love and our intimacy with God? So I want you to ask that, how are we as a church becoming unfaithful? And by, by the way, St. Augustine in his City of God says, we, the Catholic Church, are the New Jerusalem. We are the one holy Catholic Church without spot, without wrinkle, right? We are pure and immaculate. But only eschatologically, at the end of time, when all the chaff is removed from the wheat. Right now, the Catholic Church has a lot of sin and a lot of scandal, and it has bad lay people, and it has bad deacons, and it can have some bad priests and bad bishops and cardinals, and it's even over the history of time had bad popes. Right, So not everything in the Catholic Church is spiritually pure, and we can, in fact, become unfaithful to God. And I think if you read history, you can see in church history that that's happened quite, quite frequently. So how are we as a church doing that? Where are we weak? And are we running after the nations? Are we seeking to find help and confidence in our mission in the evangelization by courting secular governments? And what lesson do we learn here in chapter 17? You know, if we seek secular governments, whether it's America or the European Union or, you know, the, the United Nations or China or India or whatever it is, if we seek our survival and our well-being in that way, will they turn against us and bite us and destroy us? Probably that's usually what happens in history. So what we need to do is find our confidence and our faith in God alone, in him, and not trust in the political order. So that's that's kind of a corporate question and challenge for us. But then individually, as a person, where in my life have I become spiritually slutty? Where have I become a prostitute? And maybe your answer is, nowhere. I've kept my baptismal garment 100% clean. So I guess the question would be, where are there tendencies or faults in your life that could open you up to become unfaithful to God? And then what are the things that you can do every day? You know, we, we begin every podcast, daily habits and enough theology to take your faith to, an, to the next level. That's, that's what this show is all about. What are the daily habits that you can set into your life, into your plan of life, so that you have a constant intimacy with God, an intimate embrace with God. How do you keep that alive over a nine-decade lifespan? And those ways that we've talked about so many, so many times before we started the book of Revelation are reading the Bible every day, getting close to God and, and hearing his voice to you, getting in a quiet place, visiting a church, praying, praying the rosary, thinking about beautiful things like the saints who had beautiful virtues and Our Lady who was so full of all the virtues 
and looking at beautiful art. Um, where I live, uh, recently we moved about four or five months ago, and there is this Romanian Orthodox church just down the street from my house, and I stopped in there uh, with joy, and the entire place is covered with beautiful, just beautiful Eastern Orthodox icons, uh, mosaics covering the ceiling and the walls and the sides, and it's just so beautiful. And looking at this sacred art, I felt my heart lifted up. I felt my soul kind of exploding with joy because I saw all these great saints, I mean Catholic saints, depicted on the walls and the colors and the beauty. And I felt my I felt that I was surrounded by a cloud of saints. And there's Christ enthroned as king and Our Lady. And although it wasn't a Catholic church, I knew that the Eucharist is reserved in Orthodox churches. Seeing all those beautiful things brought back intimacy um, between my soul and between God. And I think we can do that even if it's go on your computer and Google a beautiful Renaissance painting of uh, a scene from the scriptures and look at it and maybe share it with someone. These are the kind of things that we need to do to inspire intimacy. And, you know, we talk about marriage is difficult and there's a 50% divorce rate and so on and so forth. Well, marriages work and we have to do things in order to keep that marriage alive and keep that marriage beautiful and keep that marriage singing. By the way, there's a great podcast we've done before on steps and tips to make your marriage sing. Let me see if I can, no, I don't, I don't have it open, so I can't, oh, here it is. It is episode, in case you're looking, if you, if you go to taylormarshall.com, um, you can um, look at all the podcasts we've done, almost 100 now, but it's actually one of the early ones. It's episode number five, three strategies for a marriage that sings. So I'd encourage you to listen to that. And then I also have a podcast where Joy and I sit down as a couple and we talk about marriage. That's episode 40. But you have to work at marriage and, and your spiritual life is a marriage. And if you don't do something daily, every day for your marriage, your marriage is going to suffer. And if you don't do something every day spiritually, your nuptial marriage with God is going to suffer. And God forbid that any of us, you know, wander off into spiritual infidelity. Rather, hopefully all of us enter into an even more deeper union with Jesus Christ through the new covenant, through the seven sacraments, which really is the jewelry that Jesus has given all of us to wear so that we know that we're his and that he loves us. So thanks for listening, and we are going to do our shout-outs for you, the listeners. We had a lot of great comments for you guys writing in this week, and I want to share those with you and also celebrate you. Uh, the last time um, we looked at these reviews, we are at, uh, I think, 399, and I said I'm going to give a special shout-out to number 400, and uh, you guys have been super-duper generous because it was already 410 on there. So 11 came in since last time. So thanks so much. And the reason we do these uh, ratings on iTunes, for those of you that knew, is it helps people find the podcast in iTunes. So if you want to leave a podcast, I'll give you a shout out next week and I'll tell you how to do that in just a little bit. But first I want to give recognition and a shout out to uh, number 400. I believe this is number 400. They don't give you the order they come in, but Orleans, Indiana. Orleans, Indiana. Thanks so much for uh, leaving your review. 
and uh, the five star review. I really appreciate that. And um, he or she wrote, according to Pius the Ninth and Pius the Twelfth, the most noble task of the theologian, and he puts the Latin there. I'll spare you it is to show that the dogmas in the sense in which they were defined are contained in the sources of revelation, that is, sacred scripture and sacred tradition. That task is being fulfilled by Dr. Marshall in our hearing these podcasts. Well done. There are no better resources of which I am aware. Wow. Orleans, Indiana, thank you so much for that. Thanks for bringing attention to Pope Pius IX and Pius XII. By the way, I put up a video today on Pope Pius IX in his aquatic visit of America in 1849. Sounds interesting, doesn't it? Go over to YouTube, um, search in there, Dr. Taylor Marshall. You can watch that video on Pius the Ninth. Uh, so Orleans, Indiana, thanks so much for that. Also, a, a shout goes out to Snickers Me and uh, love the name. Unfortunately, I can't eat Snickers. I'm allergic to peanuts, so I've never had a Snickers in my entire life. Pray to God that I get a healing so I could one day eat a Snickers. That'd be awesome. Also, uh, A Light in the Darkness, thank you so much for your five-star review. And James N. Phillips Jr., thank you so much. You're a member of the New St. Thomas Institute. Thanks for being a part of what we're doing over there and learning theology. Um, he, he writes that the uh, this podcast, it reinforces what he's studying in the New St. Thomas Institute. And he says, thank you for your entrepreneurial spirit using the talents which God has given you to catechize us. Thanks so much, Jim. Jim, God bless you. Thank you so much. I'm glad that you're working hard and pleasing God by studying so well. Um, also, shout out goes to Ken Hosa. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. Thank you so much, Ken Hosa. Also, Lizzie O.M., thank you for your five-star review. Charles K49, Charles, thanks so much. And R. Grateful, thank you also for your review and your five stars. And if you'd like for me to read your name on the show, please just head over to iTunes. This is a free podcast. It's a free service. But for some reason, you have to go into iTunes Store. So go into iTunes Store and search Taylor Marshall Catholic Show. That'll bring it up. It'll be the first one. Then click on it, and then you'll see a tab there that says Ratings and Review. Click on that, and you can leave a one-star, two-star, three-star, four-star, five-star, and say something about the show, and I'll pick one of them to read, but I'll definitely share your name on the podcast. Well, thanks so much. And I want to also give a shout out to all the new members of the new St. Thomas Institute that came in on our fall enrollment. Um, It's awesome to see you guys in there and I hope you're enjoying your classes and learning a lot and working through your certificates already. So welcome to the new St. Thomas Institute. You're now a mighty, mighty muskox. That's our mascot, as you'll see inside. So until next time, Remember that our Lord Jesus Christ said that you are the light of the world and the salt of the earth, so go out there and be salty. was brought to you by the new St. Thomas Institute. Discover online Catholic classes and earn your certificate in Catholic theology at the new St. Thomas Institute. To register for online Catholic classes, please visit newsaintthomas.com. That's newsaintthomas.com.